morning, Sun Valley. Good to see you today. Ever since Jesus walked on this planet, the human race has been trying to figure out who he was. Who is this guy, this Jesus Christ? Was he God as he claimed, or was he just a man? A good man, but was he just a man? The world's been asking that question since the time of Christ. Albert Schweitzer is one who's weighed in on the question. In his book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus, he wrote that Jesus possessed a messianic self-delusion and he was essentially crazy. That's what Schweitzer's conclusion was on the matter. Evidently, Schweitzer believes that Jesus started believing all the talk about himself and thought he would join in and uh, go along with it. Maybe I am God. After all, I can do a lot of cool stuff, right? Interestingly, as history has continued since the time of Christ, many who have wholeheartedly followed Christ have been accused of the same insanity. All right, we have the Apostle Paul. Remember when he was standing uh, in court before the king and Festus accused him of being out of his mind. Your great learning, Paul, is driving you mad, he says. Remember that? So Paul, one of the apostles, accused of insanity. And it continues throughout Christian history. Martin Luther was accused of being insane. John Bunyan, Wesley, Jim Elliot. All these people who are fanatically followers of Christ get the finger pointed at them and saying, you're crazy, you're nuts. But if Jesus claimed to be God, and he wasn't, was he a good man? I mean, if you claim to be God and you're not, would people around you say, oh, this is a good man? No, they would not say that, would they? <laughs> and I think that's one of the points that, that we're going to discover here today. He couldn't have been a good man and claim to be something he wasn't. If he was not God and claiming to be God, he must have been some kind of, some kind of a megalomaniac, egotist, some kind to get attention, to deceive people, to get power, whatever. But he certainly would have fallen in the category of being a good man, right? No. The question of Jesus' true identity, as you can tell, is of massive importance to each and every one of us, isn't it? Halfway through his earthly life, Jesus turned to his few disciples that were with him and say, hey, who do you say that I am? What's your opinion of my identity? The most important question you'll ever answer is this question. Who is Jesus? If you had to answer that right now, what would you say? Your answer is critical. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, then the sanest and most logical thing to do is to radically follow him. To turn your whole life into the purpose of following Jesus Christ and making much of him. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, then everything changes, doesn't it? Our pathway to heaven, for sure, our relationships, our finances, our daily lives, everything hinges on his true identity. Everything hangs in the balance. And this is exactly what the author Mark here wants us to grapple with in verses 20 through 35 that you just heard read. What we're going to see here, what I'm going to point to you, uh, ask you to focus on is verses 20 through 35 in these Verses, we will see two significant accusations and Jesus' answer to those accusations. And then, of course, Mark's purpose for you, calling you to make a decision. All right? So let's look at this. First of all, the accusations, the, the verses before us, 20 through 35, record at least two significant accusations. And they were leveled against Jesus' identity. And I want you to keep in mind what Mark's trying to do here. The author, Mark, is trying to communicate Jesus' true identity. This is the point of his book, that Jesus is God, not just God, but the Savior of the world, the solution to chaos. And his identity rests on his ability to do those things. So this is Mark's point. Mark's just not writing a story here. He has an objective, to convince you of the identity of Jesus Christ so that you will follow him wholeheartedly and be convinced of his worth in your daily life. Mark begins here to force his readers to make a decision about Christ. 
Mark records what Jesus' siblings were saying. Look at verse 20. Uh, in Mark chapter 3, verse 20, then he went home, that is, Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they said, he's out of his mind. He's nuts. He's crazy. He's insane. This is his family, mind you. They didn't yet believe. If we skip over to the Gospel of Mark, and, and I mean, Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 5, John clearly states, his brothers yet didn't believe. At this point in his ministry, they actually thought he was nuts. I mean, what would you think of one of your siblings claiming to be God? Well, Mark is not the only one who is weighing in on this. Schweitzer is not the only one who is weighing in on this. This is a topic of conversation amongst many theologians and philosophers throughout church history, starting with Christ. Listen to C.S. Lewis. He's one of the most famous who have weighed in on the matter. And he does it in a thoughtful way. He says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really silly thing that people often say about him, that is about Christ, which is this, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him or his claim to be God. That's the one thing we mustn't say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him, kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but don't let us come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He didn't intend to. That's clarifying, isn't it? <laughs> which is why I read it for you. This is what Mark is trying to get you to decide. Mark is saying this very thing. Is he a lunatic or is he Lord? The decision is yours. You've seen the evidence. What would be your call? What is your judgment? But Lewis was the one who popularized this idea of liar, lunatic, or Lord apologetic. It's a brilliant apologetic, and guess where it's based on? Mark 3. That's where it's coming from. Here, Mark is addressing the accusations of Jesus being a madman and or a liar. Let's take these one at a time. Jesus was a madman. Jesus was insane. Mark's presenting this because he wants you to grapple with it. He wants me to make a decision about the matter. And by the way, Lewis wasn't the first one to frame this argument. A Scottish preacher in 1820 named John Duncan formulated what he called the trilemma. And I have a quote for, from John Duncan for you, and you'll notice how similar it sounds to Lewis, but more importantly, how it sounds to Mark. Listen to Duncan's quote. Christ either, one, deceived mankind by conscious fraud, two, he was himself deluded and self-deceived, or three, he was divine, and there's no getting out of the trilemma. It's inexorable. <laughs> there's no, nowhere else to go, is what these guys are saying. It's what Mark is saying. Watchman Nee. After Duncan, before Lewis, Watchman Nee wrote this in 1936. There is no need for us to prove if Jesus of Nazareth is God or not. All we have to do is find out if he's a lunatic or a liar. If he's neither one of those, he must be the son of God. Mark knows this logic, and he's making, forcing you, forcing me, to come to a conclusion on the matter. Some has, have suggested that this argument, liar, lunatic, or Lord, isn't complete because Jesus may have been something else. Not a liar, not a lunatic, not a Lord. How about this? Legend. Maybe he's just made up legend. That's different than the first three, right? He really isn't one of the first three. He's a legend created by some first century Jews who wanted something to believe, needed something to believe. In other words, the Jesus of the Bible may not be a liar, a lunatic, or a lord, but simply a legend, something that never really existed. We, we believe legends all the time. Bigfoot, I mean, half of you believe in him, right? Yeah, there's a couple of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, this means that the Jesus of the Bible is not the Jesus of history. If he's legend, 
He's actually not the Jesus of history. This, what we're reading, is simply legend, folklore, made up. Right? So, so our claims about the Jesus of the Bible don't lead to the conclusion that Lewis, for example, is suggesting. Liar, lunatic, or Lord, no, legend. That's an option. Well, thankfully, we have some smart people addressing that very possibility. C.S. Lewis, for example, he addresses this option, I think, brilliantly. He answers the question whether or not Jesus' followers exaggerated story, and which grew into legend, which is recorded in the scripture. But Lewis shows how unlikely this would be for Jews to come up with such a legend. Put yourself in the shoes of a Jew coming up with a legend like this. Let me read for you Lewis's argument. This is difficult, this legend possibility is difficult because his followers were all Jews. That is, they belonged to that nation which of all others was most convinced that there was only one God, that there could not possibly be another. It is very odd that this horrible invention about a religious leader should grow up among the one people in the whole world or whole earth least likely to make up such a mistake. In other words, it wouldn't happen in the Jewish community. Maybe somewhere else, maybe some pagan community, not the Jewish community. On the contrary, we get the impression that none of his immediate followers or even the New Testament writers embraced the doctrine all that easily. All of them struggled with it. It wouldn't come from the Jews. They wouldn't make up such a legend. <laughs> the opinion of Jesus' siblings, he's crazy, is a, con, a very common opinion, i.e. Schweitzer. Many believe Jesus was a good man, but just mistaken about his own identity. That's called craziness, right? And, and that would be, I'd say, the predominant opinion of the world. If you go out in the street and say, who do you think Jesus is? Well, he's a good man, good teacher. Is he God? <laughs> no. That's the common opinion. But Jesus, they say, let his popularity go to his head and he started believing the suggestions about his messiahship, about his divinity. Right? He was nuts. Mark's asking you, is that a possibility? Jesus was nuts. Next, how about this accusation or possibility? He was a liar. That's what we see here in the text also. The, the religious leaders who came down from Jerusalem, by the way, that's an ominous sounding thing, isn't it? Scribes from Jerusalem, Jerusalem being the center of all Jewish thought, the center of Jewish religion, the, the place of the temple, the place of Jesus' crucifixion, tribes came from there, a hundred miles south, they came all the way to Capernaum to confront this liar. We see, we see dark clouds on the horizon with that statement, don't we? Yeah, well, that also is intentional. But they accused Jesus, they came all the way from Jerusalem, to announce to the crowds that they've made a decision that Jesus is trying to deceive the masses. He's a liar. They said he was lying about them, lying to them about his identity, about his motives, about everything. Religious leaders tried to pin his power and authority on Satan, it says here, on Beelzebul in verse 22. At least they acknowledge his miracles were authentic, right? They didn't say, oh, he's not really raising people from dead. He's really not healing blind people. Well, all these people who used to be dead, used to be blind, used to be lame, are up and active. You're not going to say it's not real. So they had to figure out what to pin it on. Ah, he's from Satan. That was the accusation. He's lying about all this stuff. He's actually from Satan. Listen to a quote from Philip Chaff, another theologian, who addresses this particular problem, the one of deception. The hypothesis, hypothesis of imposture, or deception, is so revolting to moral as well as common sense that its mere statement is its condemnation. How in the name of logic, common sense, and experience could an imposter, that is a deceitful, selfish, depraved man, have invented and consistently maintained from the beginning to end the purest and noblest character known in history with the most perfect air of truth and reality? Ain't gonna happen, <laughs> right? How could, we have con how could he, Jesus, have conceived and successfully carried out a plan of unparalleled beneficence, moral magnitude, sublimity, and sacrificed his own life for it in the face of the strongest prejudice of his people and ages. 
Very unlikely. So theologians here, as I've mentioned to you, have put to rest the accusations, at least from our perspective. How about Jesus? How did Jesus respond to these accusations, these two particular You're insane and you're a liar. Well, Mark includes his answer, Jesus' answer to these accusations. Let's look at Jesus' response. First of all, let's look at the logic of his answer. Verses 23 through 27, Jesus, I think, soundly refutes both accusations with simple logic, with a little bit of messianic hinting. And I'll explain that in a second. But let me read for you again Jesus' response, verses 23 through 27. And he called them to him and said in parables. Who's them? It's, It's these scribes that came from Jerusalem. It's those who heard the scribes accusing him of lying. And, and his siblings who accused him of being insane. He called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If, it, if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man. Then indeed he can plunder his house. Now, this is, this is, I think, exceptional, this answer. Uh, his answer to the accusation of the scribes that his power was from Satan is comprehensive. Not only covers his answer about being a liar, but it also, <laughs> underneath the surface, answers the question of his sanity. Look at how he does this. This whole section from verses 20 through 35 is really one section in Mark's gospel. Verses 20 through 35 is one section. I want to, I want to put an overhead uh, slide up here for you to help you see how Mark structured this, per, this part of his book, the scripture that we're looking at today. He, he structures it in what's called a chiasm. Starts on the left a margin, works towards the center, and then goes back out to the left margin. Can you see that on the overhead? Okay, what I want you to see is intentionally designed by Mark to make you and I focus on Jesus' response. The answer to the accusation of lunacy and deception is Jesus' response. You can't miss it. It's important. Don't miss it, is what Mark is saying. So, The crowds came to Jesus, we see this in verse 20. Jesus' family thinks he's nuts, verse 21. The scribes accuse him again in 22. Jesus responds in 23 through 29, and then on the way out, away from that centerpiece, if you want, maybe maybe a peak would be better. He works up to this peak and then off that peak, making the peak the point. The scribes' accusation is restated in verse 30. Jesus' family comes to take charge in chapter three, verse 31 through 34, and the crowds sit around Jesus, his new family. You see it? So the focus, our focus, must be on Jesus' answer, his response. So let's dive into his response for a little bit. This is an instruction, uh, in, in intentional structure to force us to concentrate on the important point here. All right? So, as I said a second ago, Jesus' response here in these verses, 23 through 27, uh, addresses both accusations. Uh, It destroyed the claim of the religious leaders concerning the source of his power, and it answered his insanity question. Uh, It makes their accusations make no logical sense. Uh, Within Jesus' defense, and and here's the part that I I think is, is kind of exciting and answers his sanity question, is within his defense, Jesus mentions some very interesting messianic and kingdom of God themes. He's able to look back at the book of Isaiah without saying he's quoting Isaiah to answer their questions about his sanity and and truthfulness. For example, Jesus said in verse 27 that he's stronger than Satan. Do you see it? No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man. Then indeed he can plunder his house. 
And so Jesus is saying here that he is stronger than Satan and he was sent by God to liberate Satan's captives, that is, to plunder his possessions. What are Satan's possessions? What does he desire more than anything? Than the souls of humans. That's what he desires. That's what he wants. That's what's on the table. That's what the battles are all about. It's about your soul. That's what Satan is after. It's always, he's always been after the souls of men and women and children. That's his plunder. He's the strong man of the house. Jesus comes and says, actually, he's not. I am. And he starts rescuing all these people who have been plundered by Satan, who are in his captivity, and freeing them. They're all standing around him, blind people seeing, deaf people hearing, lame people walking. I'm freeing Satan's plunder, is what he is teaching. The captives of Satan's are being liberated right before your eyes. The strongest man in the story is Jesus, and he has no competition. He is the promised strong man of Isaiah's writings. Isaiah, one of the, the clearest Old Testament prophets concerning the coming Messiah. He identifies him. He's called the suffering servant, the suffering servant savior. Halfway in to Isaiah's uh, presentation of this coming Messiah, he says this in Isaiah 49 concerning the coming Messiah. Can the prey be taken from the mighty? Or the captives of the tyrant be rescued? Who are the prey? You and me? Who's the tyrant? <laughs> Who's the mighty? It's Satan. Is there any way to loose us from the grip of the evil one? From the grip of the enemy? Isaiah is saying yes. And he's the coming suffering servant. Yes, he's the promised Messiah. And then Jesus here, in defending himself against insanity, against being deceptive, is saying, that's me. He uses logic to prove he's not insane. He uses logic and reference to the Old Testament to say, I'm not lying. I'm telling you the truth. And this is just one of many verses in the book of Isaiah that point to this suffering Savior. Now, there are a few different possibilities for the meaning of the, of the name Beelzebul. Do you see that? I want you to look at verse 22. It says, these, the accusation from the scribes was, he's possessed by Beelzebul. He's possessed by Satan. That was another name for Satan, Beelzebul. The original meaning of that name, Beelzebul, has a few options. One is Lord of the Flies. Another is Lord of the House. I think Mark is using that name to describe the name which meant Lord of the House. Why? Because of what Jesus said. Look what Jesus said. No one can enter the strong man's house. No one can enter the Lord of the house and plunder his goods and first until he binds the Lord of that house. It's not that, it's, listen, Satan isn't the Lord of the house. I'm the Lord of the house, is what Jesus is saying. You accuse me of serving under the power of Beelzebul. I'm the Lord of the house. I'm serving under the power of the Almighty. And they all heard it. The scribes knew it. The people understood what Jesus was saying. It might take some explanation for us because we're not first century Jews, which is why I'm spending time explaining it to you. This is a profound defense, a, profense, a, a, a defense of, of Jesus' sanity, a defense of Jesus' honesty. He's laying it out here as clear as possible. The logic of Jesus' response is spectacular. Let's look at the warning down here in verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. We're familiar with that scary verse, aren't we? The unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin, the sin that makes us quake in our boots, have I committed that sin ever? If I committed it when I was a teenager? Now what? Jesus said it's unforgivable either in this life or the next. I'm in deep doo-doo. Right? It's unforgivable, unpardonable. This is what Jesus just said. 
Well, this comment from Jesus has caused much consternation and confusion and fear, right? For obvious reasons. What is the unpardonable sin? Listen closely. It's not cursing. It's not using the Lord's name in vain. It's not adultery, murder, or suicide, or abortion. It's none of those. Let me read you a definition of the unpardonable sin by Kent Hughes, author and um, Bible scholar. He says, the unforgivable sin is the ongoing, continual rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit to the divinity and saviorhood of Christ. I'm gonna unpack this so you don't have to keep it all in your brain right now. It is a perversion of the heart which chooses to call light darkness and darkness light. Quite, let's, let's start with this. Has anyone ever committed the unpardonable sin? Yes, they're in hell. That's the answer, yes. If you die and remain resistant to the true identity of Jesus, which the Holy Spirit clearly has revealed in Scripture, the work of the Holy Spirit, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit would be saying, I don't believe it. All right? If that is the sin, you remain in the rejection of the only way to salvation. As long as you hold on to that persuasion that Jesus isn't God, that Jesus isn't Lord, that he isn't the Savior of the world, you are in the process of committing the unpardonable sin. Follow me, right, follow me. Another way to describe the unforgivable sin is to simply call it persistent unbelief. Belief is a product of the Holy Spirit. Sinning against the Holy Spirit means you're persisting, persisting in rejecting his persuasion in scripture, in life. The unforgivable sin requires a rejection of God's revelation given to us by the Holy Spirit. It requires knowledge of and rejection of revealed truth. The scribes and Pharisees fell into that category. They were teachers of Israel. They knew the scriptures, but they persisted in unbelief by rejecting the one the Holy Spirit was putting forward as the Messiah. And they were saying, he's a liar. He's not the Messiah. That's persistent unbelief. The warning from Jesus pointed particularly at those who had exposure to religious teaching, knowledge, education. Guess what? Jesus' teaching would have been pointed at people like you and me who sit in church week after week after week but don't respond to the admonition of the scripture, admonition of the Holy Spirit of the scripture to change our life and embrace Jesus as Lord. This is who Jesus is pointing at. And on top of all this, we need to notice something very important here in, these, in this passage. Even though these religious leaders made these vile accusations against Jesus, he did not say that they had committed the unpardonable sin. Did you notice that? He didn't accuse them of that sin. He said, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. He didn't say, you've blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. He said, whoever does. So this isn't a personal attack from Jesus on these scribes and Pharisees. He's simply warning them not to go there. Don't remain in persistent unbelief. Don't be remain opposed to the gospel. And this is what we need to remember. This will help you understand the unforgivable sin. Did any of these scribes, any of these Pharisees who were making this accusation ever come to Christ? Read the book of Acts, what's it say? Yes, they came to Christ. They did not remain in persistent sin, which means they didn't commit the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is only committed or only uh, assigned, if I could say it that way, at the moment of death when you can no longer believe. That should give you a sigh of relief who've been worrying about this your entire life. All you must do to avoid the unpardonable sin is really simple. Listen, believe. <laughs> believe. Once you believe, you, there's no possibility for you committing the unpardonable sin of offending the Holy Spirit, blaspheming the Holy Spirit's work, 
which is Jesus Christ crucified for you. Within the warning, and here's where I want you to turn up your hearing aids. Within the warning, verse 28 particularly, uh, we discover a wonderful truth that I want to camp on. Look at all that God does forgive. Look at all the sins that are forgiven. Look at verse 28. Truly I say to you, what's the next word? All sins will be forgiven. All sins. Not some sins, not the sins that he can handle. All sins will be forgiven. All blasphemies will be forgiven. And we're so worked up about the unpardonable sin, we skip right over that and jump to verse 29 and say, oh, the unpardonable sin, I wonder if I've done it. Let's look back at verse 28. <laughs> what a wonderful truth. The, the category that Jesus establishes here about sins that will be pardoned, will be forgiven completely, is a massive category that includes all sins. Every sin. All the things that we can possibly commit, all the sins that we have committed, God withholds his forgiveness from none of them. You have been worked up in your past about certain sins that you've committed and felt like you're unworthy uh, of the forgiveness of God. Do you believe Jesus or don't you? He just said, all sins are forgiven. And if anybody can say those words, it's Jesus, the one who died for them. All sins are forgiven. God withholds his forgiveness from only one, and that is rejecting the person and work of Jesus Christ up till the day you die. After that, there will be no forgiveness. You've struggled believing that God can forgive your specific sins. Read the words of Christ again, all. Listen to this. The, the worst murderers we ever read of will be in heaven. Adulterers will be in heaven. Habitual liars will be in heaven. Lusters will be in heaven. Backsliders will be in heaven. Abusers will be in heaven. Every sort of sinner will populate heaven. Why? Because Jesus came to save sinners. He came to seek and save the lost. You remember, he's a friend of sinners. He saves people like us all the time. The worst of us. The Apostle Paul, I am the chief of sinners, the worst sinner ever to live on this planet. Paul thought was himself. You, you might think you're in, in competition with him. Well, you're in good company because God forgives all sin. All sin. You know who makes up the population of heaven, right? It's redeemed sinners. It's us. We simply have to come to Christ <laughs> and lay our sins at his feet and plead his promises, plead his forgiveness. And it's done. It is finished. This is a glorious doctrine of the gospel, isn't it? And to think that it's written right next to the most scary doctrine in the Bible. The most wonderful doctrine is side by side with the scariest doctrine, intentionally. The first thing we understand here is that there is full pardon, full forgiveness, complete remission without money or price. You don't have to work your way to forgiveness. You can't work your way to forgiveness. Listen to Luke recording one of the apostles in Acts 13, verse 39. This apostle said, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything. You see that? You might want to underline that in your Bible. Uh, and, and maybe in your Bible, go back to Mark 3, verse 28, and highlight, underline, take a picture of the word, all sins will be forgiven. Put it on your dashboard, on your refrigerator, on your mirror. All sins will be forgiven. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything. 
from which you cannot be freed from by the law. All sins, everything. <laughs> you got nothing that Jesus can't forgive. Then we get to Isaiah 118. It says, though your sins are like scarlet, though they're running like blood red, he can make them white as snow. Is that awesome? Mm. I hope you're hearing this. This is, I think, Scripture's most precious truth. No matter how you feel about your sin, about your failures, Jesus will forgive. And when we come to him by faith and bring our sins, no matter what they are, we are washed clean, 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 Jesus clean. He casts our sin behind his back. He throws it into the deepest sea. He separates it from himself as far as east is from the west, which is infinite. We are clean. So let's run to Christ. Let's run to the one who's offering this, the one who's promising this. Let's go to Jesus with everything that burdens us down and lay them at his feet, knowing that he freely, joyfully, and completely forgives all in every way to the uttermost. So Mark has said, is he a lunatic? Make your decision. Did he live like a lunatic? Did he talk like a lunatic? Was he crazy? Next, was he a liar? Was he deceiving people? Was he telling them falsities? And if you've come to the correct conclusion, Mark says, here's the bottom line. In verses 31 through 35, here's the bottom line. His siblings didn't believe him up to this point in his ministry. The religious leaders were rejecting him. Look at what it says in verse 31. And his mother, that is Mary, his mother, and his brothers came standing outside. They sent to him and called to him. They were standing outside. And as the Holy Spirit never wastes words, and the New Testament authors never waste words. These words are intentionally given to make us think. Juxtaposed with those standing outside are whom? Those sitting inside. You see that in the very next verse? His family, the ones who were calling him nuts, were standing outside. Those who embraced Jesus were sitting inside. They were resting in Christ inside. What's the point? Mark's making an intentional contrast here for us to help you see. And this is particularly important for those of us who've grown up in Christian families. To help us see there is no biological path into the family of God. Period. You can't save your kids. Kids, your parents' faith cannot be your faith. You must come on God's terms by yourself in front of Christ. There is no salvation in any other thing. As wonderful as our parents are or were, my relationship with God must stand alone between me and my Savior. Period. That's the first thing that Mark wants you to hear. Being a part of God's family is not a biological thing. Secondly, it's not a curiosity thing. You see all these crowds that are always clamoring around Jesus? How many of them were converted? After three years of preaching, teaching to literally millions of people, guess how many were in the family of God? Acts tells us. 120. The day Jesus ascended to heaven, the count was 120. What's Mark's point? There is no biological entryway into the family of God. There's no curiosity way into the family of God. Sitting in church week after week, month after month, year after year, because this stimulates your intellect does not save you. Coming here because there's nice people in this room doesn't save you. 
There's only one path into the family of God, and it's not biological, and it's not being around it. You can't become a Christian. You cannot be a, a follower of Christ by osmosis. Sitting next to a believer doesn't make you a believer any more than sitting in a garage makes you a car. It doesn't work. You must come to Christ. You must embrace him as Lord. What is then entry into the family of God? Look at what he says. Verse 35. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. They are the family of God. Who? Those who do the will of God. Now, pray tell, what's the will of God? Guess what? They asked that question in the book of John. They came to Jesus and said, what is the will of God? What's the work of God that we must be doing? What did Jesus say? Well, make sure you're in church. You know, make sure you you got a clean house. Make sure you're giving money. No, what did he say? Doing the will of God is believing in him who he sent. Believing in God is embracing Jesus as God and Lord of creation, Lord of your life. That's the only way into the family of God. There's no other path. Mark is making this abundantly clear. What is the will and work of God? To believe in him who he has sent. Being in his family is defined by submitting to his lordship. You may say, well, I prayed to receive Jesus as my savior. That's great. Those are words. Words are fine, but words don't save you. What makes Jesus your Lord? Words? <laughs> That's the last thing on the list. It's make, making much of Christ. It's bowing the knee. It's submitting to him in all things, every day in every way. That's what it means to be in the family of God. That doesn't mean you, you won't fail. You will. Um, but it means it's a constant pursuit. It's a clear trajectory. It's, it's Christ's word. This is what doing the will of God means. I'm going to close with this quote from J.C. Ryle and then one quote from the Apostle Paul. G.C. Ryle wrote this, how much there is in a single expression. What a rich mine of consolation it opens to all true believers. Who can conceive the depth of our Lord's love towards Mary, the mother that bore him and on whose bosom he had been nursed? Who can imagine the breadth of his love towards his siblings with whom he, the tender years of his childhood had been spent? Doubtless no heart ever had within it such deep wellspring of affection as the heart of Christ. He loved his biological family deeply. Yet even he says of all who do the will of God that each is his brother and sister and mother. You want to be a brother of Christ Jesus? You want to be in the family of Christ Jesus? You must embrace him as God and Lord. Apostle, the Apostle Paul gives his sane reply, the only possible reply to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. There's the response. That should be our response. And this is what Paul is pleading for. I appeal to you, brothers. I beg of you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, your daily life, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Friends, the only sane reply, the only sane response to Jesus Christ as he's presented in the Gospels is a radical pursuit of Christ. That's it. Can I say this? It's insane not to. You are insane if you're presented with facts and neglect them 
or reject them. The only sane life is one that is radically committed to Christ. Every other option is insane. Every month we, we offer, serve you the Lord's Supper. And today, as we do regularly or often I should say, we're going to recite, we're going to read together the Apostles' Creed. Now the Apostles' Creed is, is broad, but it's profound, it's meaningful. And if you truly embrace the Apostles' Creed, you're embracing Jesus as Lord. This is one reason we read it from time to time. It's because it clearly lays out what it is we must believe to be in the family of God, to embrace the Lordship of Jesus Christ. These are the things we must believe. And so we read them together. Uh, this really, the Apostles' Creed, is, is a call that the Apostle Paul would have given in Romans 12. It's a, a response, like Romans 12, 1 and 2 is, like I just read for you. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me, if you would, right now, with the Apostles' Creed in hand, or it's on the overhead, I think. And we're going to read this together. And I want to ask you to consider whether or not you truly believe what we're reading. If you do, what ought to be our response? What ought to be my response? Let's read this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Do you believe that? Friends, if you believe that, your only response can be a radical commitment to Christ. We're saying he's God. <laughs> he, he came to live and die for us. My only response, my only logical sane response is to run full force into the rest of my life making much of Christ. The Lord's Supper pictures the Lordship of Christ. The broken bread that we take is a picture of the broken body of Jesus Christ, which is effective in covering your sin. The juice that we take is a picture of the spilt blood of Christ, which is required for you to be saved. Jesus had to die, had to spill his blood. There is no remission of sins without the shedding of blood, Hebrews says. And Jesus Christ's blood was shed and our sins are forgiven if we embrace it. It's a call to embrace Jesus Christ and all that he is, his divine lordship over my life. And when I take it, I am saying by my action, I believe in the lordship of Jesus Christ. I embrace God in Christ for my sin. Partake. And with that faith, comes the assurance from Christ that he meets us there in the elements and that he ministers to our soul and reminds us of his love and forgiveness that comes freely to all who will embrace him. Another thing I want to say, just in passing, since I'm talking about uh, a sacrament of the church, an ordinance of the church here, the Lord's Supper, there is one other sacrament, one other ordinance. What is it? Baptism, right? So we have the Lord's Supper and baptism. These two go together. They're designed to go together. It's wrong to take them apart. These are ordinances. They both remind us of Christ. They picture Christ. They picture our salvation. Everything about God is pictured in these two ordinances, which is why they're ordinances, which is why they're sacraments. They're commanded of us that we partake if we're Christians. My point is this. If we're willing to take the supper, we must also be willing to be baptized. 
If you're not willing to be baptized, you either don't understand the gospel or you shouldn't be taking the supper. You shouldn't be taking the supper if you haven't been baptized. In other words, if you're standing here saved, having embraced the Lordship of Christ, embracing the gospel, you must be baptized. Jesus and his apostles said, believe and take the supper, right? No. He said, believe in what? Be baptized. The first step of obedience is baptism, not the supper. So don't rip them apart. Parents of young children, your kids really shouldn't be taking the supper if they haven't been baptized. If they understand the supper, then they understand baptism. If they understand baptism, they should be baptized. You shouldn't baptize kids that don't understand the baptism or the supper, but neither should they be taking the supper. It's, it's really clear in Scripture and in conversation. So, if you understand the gospel, Jesus is my Lord and Savior who spilt his blood, who broke his body for me on Calvary. That's the only way I'm going to be saved. Then you understand the gospel and you should take the supper. If you do that, you understand the gospel, you should be baptized. Don't withhold those sacraments from your children if they understand. Don't resist those sacraments yourself if you understand. Be blessed of God from both baptism and the Lord's Supper. They are such a blessing. And with those blessings come promises of, of nurture, of, of spiritual uh, food, of encouragement and strengthening in the Christian life. I'm going to pray and ask the Lord's blessing over the verses that I'm going to read here in a second. Um, and then I'm going to ask you to come up front in single file, and then we're going to serve you the elements. You can take those elements back to your seat and partake whenever you're ready. We'll be singing a song, and so you can just uh, take those whenever. And the, the elements come in, in one little dish, so you just need one dish, and in the dish is the bread and uh, the cup. Okay, that makes sense. Listen to these words. Elders, if you're going to help me, you can come as I read. Paul said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's thank God for this. Father, thank you so much for sending your son to be the sacrifice for our sin, to, the, to, to be the satisfaction that you require. Thank you so much that, that his sacrifice was effective, that it worked, that his death, burial, and resurrection secures my salvation, forgives my sin, reserves a place for me in glory one day, and gives me the strength to live for you. Father, we, we give all praise and honor to you, your Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit who makes all these things possible. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen.